Welcome to the Erickson Covenant Podcast. We are so glad that you've joined us today. We confess that we don't have all the answers, but as a community, we seek to find and follow Jesus and to discover daily the life he has always wanted for us. We hope this message will be encouraging and will inspire you to take the next steps on your spiritual journey. If we can help you in any way, please connect with us. The easiest way is through our website at ericksoncovenant.ca. Let's get started. Next week, Advent begins, of course, and we're looking at the arrival of Jesus, arrival as we prepare our hearts and minds for the coming of the Savior. 2,000 years ago, the Messiah arrived. But the truth is, people have struggled, doubted, even over the centuries, even in the time of Jesus, with Jesus himself. They've had doubts about him. Did you know that? Doubts about his humanity, doubts about his divinity, doubts about his death, doubts about his resurrection, doubts about his goodness, uh, doubts about his authority, doubts about his marital status, you know that one, doubts uh, about um, his historicity, uh, doubts about his miracles, doubts about his teaching, doubts about his politics, all of those doubts people have had about Jesus. And then there's his followers. You might have noticed they have also inspired doubt at times. I've inspired doubt at times, I'm sure. But we know that whether it's Judas or Peter or Paul and then marching down through time, the church of Jesus Christ has sometimes been doubted, questioned, rejected, denounced, and let's be honest, sometimes for legitimate reasons. If you're a student of history, it's a mixed bag of glory and cringe. Doubting Jesus and certainly doubting those who follow him has a long history. So the question is, how do we grapple with those doubts? How do we name them? How do we acknowledge them? How do we respond to them? Because how we do so is actually very important. Be they doubts from people that we know who are outside the church, may they they be doubts that we struggle with inside the church, be they doubts that we have and carry within ourselves. We must honestly sift and weigh those doubts, engage and respond to those doubts, be the doubters around us or the doubters within. And so you don't have to shout these out. I want you just to think about this in your mind as you begin today. What are some of the doubts that you wrestle with? What are doubts you've heard expressed from others? Maybe things that you have a hard time like responding to or even hearing. What are some of the doubts that continue to nag your own heart and your own mind? I start that way because it is important that we acknowledge doubt. That we don't shut that down. It's important that we have a place, a safe place in a community where we can express them. Where we can try to understand even what it is or what's underneath it or what aspects of this doubt are are, are true or what's coming from a bias. And how how do we work with that? Today, in our last master class before Advent, we're going to see Jesus respond to a very famous doubter. And no, I'm not talking about Thomas, my namesake. (laughs) Doubts, though, coming from one of Jesus' closest allies. From actually his own family, his own family member, and uh, someone who's been a missional colleague of his, you could say. 
And in doing so, watching how Jesus responds in this case will help us grapple with doubts that we experience today. Let's pray, though, as we begin. Lord Jesus, we look to you. And uh, we acknowledge that there are doubts that we have or that we carry. Um, some of us more than others. Some of us seem wired for it. Others don't seem to struggle much with it at all. But we know that within a community our size, there are, there's a variety of questions, doubts, wonderings. And Jesus, I pray that you'd help us through them to respond, to engage, uh, to fruitfully think through and um, begin to express. And, and uh, we just ask that you would lead us through that, Lord. Um, some of us today uh, don't profess to follow you and, and have our own set of doubts. Others of us would say, yes, we follow you, Jesus, but wow, we've got questions. Wherever we're coming from today, Lord, we ask that you'd lead us. In your name we pray, amen. So we're in Luke's gospel. We're in chapter 7. Uh, we're picking up uh, the story following these two amazing uh, miracles, healings that we saw. Um, first, there was the remote healing of the sick uh, servant. Um, it, the uh, me- message that Peter uh, led us through a couple weeks ago. And then last week, this unexpected uh, resurrection of a, of a dead boy, which Rob Peterson uh, led us through. And the ripples of these two events and these kinds of miracles are spreading the good news of Jesus all over the countryside, all over the cities. And so we're going to pick up the story in verse 18 because this news is sweeping out and reaching even into prison and it's caught the attention of John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist, you might remember, was not only a cousin of Jesus, but he was the prophet chosen by God to prepare the way for Israel's Messiah. And he did so by calling the people of Israel to repent Uh, to be baptized, and to get themselves ready for the one who was coming. But Luke told us already, back in chapter 3, right after telling us about John the Baptist, he told us that John had actually been arrested by King Herod for challenging him on his immoral behavior. And all this time, John has been languishing in prison. There was a real handoff there from John to Jesus, and then John was just taken off the board. But the news about Jesus, as we know, can't be kept from prisoners, and so it reaches him. Verse 18, this is where we begin reading today. John's disciples told him about all these things. All the things being the miracle of Jesus healing, raising a dead boy and healing others, all that's going on. Calling two of them, John sent them to ask the Lord, John sent them to the Lord to ask, are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? You notice something here. Notice how Luke very artfully underscores the question here by repeating it. Whenever biblical authors do that kind of thing, they really want you to hear what they're doing. Two times we hear the exact same question repeated. Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? So John the Baptist, and the one who baptized Jesus, John the great prophetic forerunner of the Messiah, John who's a cousin, he's got doubts about Jesus. 
He's got doubts. Do you see that? He's got doubts about his messiahship. He's got doubts if he's really the one. He's experiencing some sort of internal conflict. How did that happen? What could have inspired the doubts John Baptist? Because, you know, if you read anything of what's going on with John, he seems like the kind of character that had no doubts at all. Look at what he wore. Look how he dressed, for crying out loud. Look where he lived. Look what he said. You know, you don't look at those kind of characters and think, there's a guy racked with doubt. Huh? You don't. Right? He wore camel hair, for crying out loud. But he's got doubts. He's got doubts. Think about what he's been hearing about Jesus. He's been hearing about all these healings. Uh, He's been hearing about how the crowds are coming to follow Jesus. He's been hearing some really amazing stuff that's been happening. And how is it that these reports have inspired doubts? I'll I'll throw it open to you. What do you think is happening? If you say just a quick response, I'll repeat it for for those of us who are joining us online. What could be inspiring these doubts for him? Shout it out. He's in prison. Work of the enemy, yes. Raising doubts for him. Deprivation. Deprivation. Yeah, I can't think being in Herod's prison for challenging Herod on who he's married to, you're going to be first class, right? So he's probably hungry, thirsty, in the dark. You can go on. These were nice places. What else? Could it be? Oh, Mark. Yeah, he's questioning his own life, ministry. Like, did I set up the wrong dude? Like, was I, was I blinded by the fact that he was my cousin? You know, like, what happened here? Because he could be really, I mean, not only is there all the hard stuff, because that's real. That's, that's real. He's in a dark pit, literally. And there's a despair that comes with that, a depression that comes with that. But also beginning to wonder, did I just squander the whole thing? We know he doesn't get out of prison. He loses his head. Was my life for nothing? Did I set up the wrong guy? Well, that's a, that's a crisis. <laughs> that's an existential crisis. God called me and I missed it. Ouch. What else do you think might be going on for John? Perhaps, he certainly doesn't seem that way. Maybe he did it for, on the fa- for the sake of his followers. That could be. Most don't think that. Most think, yeah, he's, 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 it's, it's from him, you know. But yeah, Peter. Depression. depression. Yeah, he's genuinely experiencing depression. Yeah, he, he, his life, he's like really down. Yeah. Could it also be that John's expectations of who he was announcing aren't being met by Jesus? I mean, in John chapter, or John, whew, there is a gospel called John, not written by John the Baptist. In Luke chapter 3, if you listen to John's preaching, what was he expecting Jesus to do when he arrived? Bring down the smack. He was expecting, well, oh, I quote, He's telling about Jesus here, baptizing you with fire. Quote from John. 
His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor, to gather the wheat in his barn, and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. That was John's preaching. He gave a certain edge to what this Messiah was going to do that, well, Jesus is healing people. He's hanging out with a bunch of sinners. All he seems to be doing is drifting around the countryside, making everyone feel better. John's thinking, that is not what I said you were going to do. I wanted you to burn this place down to the ground for crying out loud. Look where I am because I said that. Look where I am because I've been faithful, right? Jesus is out there, you know, making everyone dance and laugh. Could it be that John maybe was a little disappointed in Jesus? Could it be that Jesus was acting in a way that wasn't, well, it wasn't what John thought was going to be the case, and that has raised doubts for him. It's probably a complex of all these things. But whatever it was, John was asking the question, are you the one? Or do we keep looking? That's a real doubt, friends. Coming from this guy, this is a real, this is a real deal. Uh, Luke goes on, verse 21. At that very time, the very time that John heard the reports, the very time that John's disciples came to Jesus and asked them a question, at that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, to John's disciples, said, go back and report to John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear, the dead are raised. And the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble or is not scandalized on account of me. I want you to notice how Luke tells the story here. How he surrounds John's doubts with Jesus' actions. Just in this, just right here in this phrase. This, this kind of literary unit. It's important because Luke's conveying something through this. First, John hears about all the things that Jesus is doing. So then he sends his followers to ask Jesus if he's the one. And Jesus' response is to tell John to take a look at the things he's doing. You see that? Jesus' actions surround John's question. John's doubt is real. It's visceral. It's existential. He's in a dark hole. He's wondering if he's actually missed the very one he was supposed to have been preparing for. He gave his whole life to this, and he's experiencing searing doubt. And Jesus doesn't dismiss that doubt. What he invites John to do is to look again. John, take a look at what's happening in the lives of the people around me because of me. This is what Jesus is saying to John. John, see the ways that people are being utterly transformed through me. The blind are receiving sight. This kind of thing is not run of the mill. The lame are walking. Those who have leprosy are cleansed, beautifully cleansed. The deaf can now hear. The dead are being raised. Hello. And the good news is being proclaimed to the poor. My brother, John, this is all the proof of the kingdom of God breaking in and changing everything. This is the kingdom fruit that you need to be looking for. This is what you gave your life to prepare for. This is happening 
And there's a bunch of allusions in this passage that this is what's happening in fulfillment of promises given in particular in Isaiah. Isaiah 35, which Amber read for us, that's essentially what Jesus is quoting here. But you might remember that Jesus, when he started things, he read from Isaiah 61. It's all the same stuff. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's given me, anointed me to preach good news to the poor and all, all that stuff, right? And then, and then he's also quoting from, uh, pointing to Psalm, or Isaiah 42, where it talks about the same thing, how the Messiah will come and the eyes of the blind will be opened and that, you know, life will come. And he's alluding again to Isaiah 40, that the messenger, you know, is, has come. So it's all interconnected in here, which we could go through and read it, and I encourage you to do in Isaiah. But what, what Jesus is saying is, these prophetic promises, John, that you gave your life to, they not only gave definition to your mission, but they've given definition to mine, and I'm continuing that, Jesus says. So John, take a look, and let the proof of what you see happening be the answer to the doubt you're experiencing. Jesus says here, essentially, that the cure to John's doubt is to look at Jesus again. To look at him. In particular, to look at the effects of him. The changes that Jesus brings to people's lives. To look at the proof in the fruit pudding. That's what Jesus says. And it's worth a moment of our time. Because this is the primary way that doubts about Jesus are effectively engaged by looking again at Jesus himself and listening to what happens when people meet him, when people come to know him, when people begin to experience Jesus in their lives. Think about the doubts that you may have about Jesus that you've struggled with. If you can narrow in on what that doubt is about, what's the best way to address it? In my conversations with people, as they struggle with doubt, it is often true that the doubts have come in when they've actually stopped looking at Jesus and started looking at other things. That's just true. Now, there are real doubts about Jesus, don't get me wrong. But often, when people have struggled with doubt, you find very quickly that's because along the way, they've actually stopped looking at Jesus altogether. They've started staring at that guy, or her, or them. They've started looking at their own problems. They've started wondering what's happening in their life. And so part of, and I don't mean this simplistically. I mean this in real truth. And we'll talk about some of the ways we can do this. But if we could narrow down on what our doubt is about, the best way to address it is to first go back to Jesus himself. To begin to look at Jesus himself to take an honest, open look at the person of Jesus as, the, as he has been revealed to us in the Gospels. How is he living? What is he about? What does he do? To take the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these very historically reliable, and if that's where your doubts are, there's ways to address, with, address that, but these historically reliable, Holy Spirit-inspired reports of who Jesus is and what he did, of why he came, of what he, what he said, uh, why he lived, uh, ways of understanding him. And these stories have a powerful way, if we will approach them with honesty and openness, a powerful way of cutting through the despair and the struggle, the darkness and the doubt, not necessarily completely alleviating them, but giving us a way forward. 
Not necessarily answering every single niggling little worry, but by ultimately bringing us back to the person of Jesus himself and inviting us into a place of trust. One of the best ways to respond to doubts about Jesus in your own life or in the lives of others is actually to take a long look at Jesus. And this is very practical application. For those of us who are not followers of Jesus, who are present here would say, I do not follow, I do not yet believe, I do not yet trust. For those who've joined us online, the truth is, a beautiful way forward in understanding who Jesus is is to simply go to the Gospels. I think it's one of the only ways, quite frankly. To go to the Gospel of John or the Gospel of Luke and to read it with an openness, to read it carefully, to maybe get a friend to read it with you, to take notes on this Jesus. Who is he? What did he do? What is it about? What did he say? Why did he come? Why did he die? Why did he rise again, if I believe that sort of thing? But why did it say he rose again? To actually read these Gospels with an openness to understand, to come back, to see who is Jesus. But that's the same for those of us who follow him too. Those of us who are struggling in life, who are having doubts. Often, what I've discovered, is those doubts aren't centered around the person of Jesus. They're centered around the church. They're centered around what somebody has said. They're centered around some event in my life. They're centered around suffering. They're centered around what's going on politically, what's going on in culture. And the invitation is very clear to come back to Jesus, to turn our hearts and our minds and our attention back to the person of Jesus. And so our practical application is exactly the same. If you find yourself struggling with doubt and despair, to take a look, a long look at Jesus to go back to the Gospels, to go back to your first love, and to actually begin to soak in who Jesus is. We aren't done with doubt yet this morning. Let's keep going. But Jesus has more to say about it. We'll move a little faster. After John's messengers left, this is verse 24, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. This is Jesus' words. Uh, What did you go out to the wilderness to see? A A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No. Those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxuries are in palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you. And more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. He's quoting from the prophet Malachi there. I tell you, Jesus says, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Now, this is a fascinating passage. I won't take too much time with it, but it's almost as though Jesus is now addressing doubt that people may have had about John the Baptist. Um, I mean, he was a bit of a flash in the pan, wasn't he? (laughs) You know, now he's in prison. We haven't really seen him since. Why? What was all that about? But look how Jesus lays out the pure prophetic facts about John. Look how he honors him, how he holds him up as the greatest of all prophets, but how Jesus also places John in the historical or the salvation history context, how he came to prepare everyone else for something that he himself was not participating in. That's the whole bit about him being least in the kingdom. He was a prophet of preparation, but not participation, you could say. But then Luke... 
um, the spirit-inspired writer of this gospel, he does something important here because he wants to draw our attention as readers to the fruit of John's ministry as well. He's pointed out the fruit of Jesus' ministry, but now he wants to point us to the fruit of John's ministry, and it's all connected. This is what Luke goes on to say, and the NIV gives it helpfully in brackets. The brackets aren't part of the original, but just gives us in brackets because it really is like a parenthetical comment. It's meant for us. All the people even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right because they had been baptized by John. But the Pharisees and the experts in the law rejected God's purposes for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. What does this mean? It's very interesting that those who are coming to see Jesus now, those who are hearing his words, those who are responding to his teaching, those who are receiving healing and deliverance and freedom and life, They were the people that John had prepared. That's what Luke is trying to tell us. They're the people that had responded to John's message and ministry. In other words, some at least, maybe not entirely, but some of the fruit of Jesus' ministry is because John did his. It's the fruit of John's ministry too. That those who are responsive to John's preparation, who repented and were baptized, they were ready to see Jesus. They were ready to respond to him. They were ready to take him on as the Messiah as he arrived. But those who rejected John, whose hearts were hard, who didn't receive John's message, who rejected him, were not baptized, were not open, turns out they're the same ones who rejected God's purpose for themselves as now revealed through Jesus. I think that's fascinating. Could it be that doubts about Jesus and his followers must also be addressed by looking at the very same thing, the fruit the lives changed by Jesus. This is true as we look down through Christian history. I know that. Uh, recently, and this may be a bit of a side, but I'm just going to tell you anyway. Uh, recently, I read Tom Holland's massive history book called Dominion. Peter's working his way through that too, I think. It's a slog. I won't lie to you. <clears throat> but Tom Holland says something that people often miss. That is that much of Western society's values that are considered obvious and self-evident truth, things are just like, no kidding, of course that's true. All those values come straight out of Christianity. Uh, Now, to be clear, Tom Holland's not a Christian. In fact, I don't think he's even a theist. Although I think Jesus is knocking hard on his door. Uh, He ain't there yet. But he's absolutely clear on this. There would be no such thing as human rights as freedom of speech, as women's rights, as the ability of someone to consent to sex, particularly women, Uh, freedom of speech, care for the vulnerable, uh, care for the poor, concern for the disabled, uh, lawful protections uh, against uh, the powerful just running roughshod over the weak. And the list goes on. He says none of those things, zero, would be true today and obvious and self-evident if it were not for Christianity. Now, the people around us, you yourselves, I'm sure, me, we think these things are just obvious and good, and don't we just realize that's just the way things are? But he shows conclusively that that is not the case, that these things would not be true, would not be self-evident, would not be just assumed as the right values if it were not for Christian history. When he looks around, and he does, he looks at other worldviews, other historical uh, systems, other cultures, He shows that unless they were influenced by Christianity, they did not give rise to that kind of fruit, friends. When you study them, you quickly see 
that is, is what is, you know, it's the might makes right. It is the powerful smashing the weak and everyone thinks, well, of course they are because they're powerful. That's the way things are. In fact, that's the way things should be. It was just patently obvious to everyone that if you had the power to do it, you had the right to do it to, to whomever and whatever you wanted. If you study other religions, you can quickly see how different women and children are treated as well as any kind of outsider. There's not respect and honor and dignity shown. That's the reason why down through history, this might be a shock to some of you, but whenever Christianity has come into contact with another culture, the status of women has always gone up, not down. And Tom Holland shows this. He's not the first one to show it, but he, who's not a Christian, tells us to take another look at the proof in the pudding. The proof of how this is rolled out and to see the real life good effects on people's lives that the coming of Jesus has. There's times in this book, I, I, you're like, what is going on with this guy? He's like preaching the good news. I hope he's hearing it. Because the coming of Jesus and the ripple effect of that through his people has had a mind-blowing effect. Now, I want to be clear here. This doesn't deny or ignore the many, many times that Christians and the church down through history have failed to follow Jesus, have mucked things up and hurt people along the way. If you ever get the gumption to read Tom Holland's book, um, there'll be times you want to throw it across the room too because our history is not all roses and sunshine. But you also see how inherent within the church there's something corrective and for as many times as you might cringe, there'll be other times when you are excited to see how the unchristlike behavior of the church gets corrected by the Christ of the church. Because again, the proof is in the fruit pudding. It's only when the church takes their eyes off Jesus that things go awry. Get back to Jesus, and the ship rights itself. And we begin to see lives changed for the better by Jesus. And the good thing, Jesus doesn't abandon the ship, he writes it. Amen? So, proof's in the pudding. Let's finish the section and then we'll wrap up. Verse 31, Jesus went on to say, To what then can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace, calling out to each other, We played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not cry. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say he's a glutton and a drunkard a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by all her children. Wisdom is proved right by all her children, which is another way of saying the proof is in the fruit pudding. Look at what happens. Look at the lives changed by Jesus. Look at the fruit of his ministry. Look at what's happening as a result when people actually encounter the risen Christ and begin to follow him. Look at the changes in their marriages. Look at the changes in their emotional health. Look at the changes in their lives. Look, look, look. Jesus is still present, still making changes, still bringing life, and he will do so to the end when he restores all. The proof is in the fruit pudding. Yes, we struggle with doubt. I do You do. And when we look around, there's lots of times where it feels like we have good reason to. The invitation is look back at Jesus. Take a long look at him. Tell him your doubts and see where it takes you.
we have time for a few questions? Sure, we do. A few questions today. Uh, we have a roving mic. Um, I'm not the Bible answer man. I will attempt to grapple with some of your questions, uh, but I'd love to hear what you have to say. Olin's going to walk around with a microphone if you have some thoughts on, on how to deal with doubt or how this uh, rolls out for you, what Jesus has said here. Anyone? Or questions that you'd like to ask? Wow. No doubts at all. You have doubts about me? Is that what you just said? I get it. Ha! I do too! (laughs) I have no doubt that you just want me to wrap up the message so you can go home. Did I surprise you with that? I should have warned you, right? I should have warned you that I was going to ask you some questions or ask you to give me questions. Well, there you go. I'll do it another time. Um, I'm challenged by this. I have struggled, particularly in the last few years, with how nuts everything is. Have you? I have. Man, there's days when I've got up in the morning and I thought, what is going on? I am struggling because it feels like the world is a dumpster fire. The church is even worse. There's just, it feels like every time I turn around, another Christian leader falls. I am devastated. Even just news this week of a professor I've learned some from. Wasn't a buddy, but you know what I'm saying. More junk. Just, ah! I got my doubts. But you know what, friends? Jesus is good. And he pushes back against that stuff. And he calls us to account. And he says, follow me. And when I feel the most dismayed by what's happening around us, I feel strongly the invitation from Jesus. Take my eyes off that stuff. Not that I don't need to discern and grapple and respond. But I don't take my cues from that. I take my cues from him. And so if you hear anything else today, as we look around us and we experience the doubts or the depression or the despair, may we look to Jesus. He's here for us. My worship team is going to come. We're going to lead us in one final song about Jesus. But let's pray. Lord Jesus, I am grateful that you take our doubts seriously. And your invitation to us is not to tell us, stop doubting. But in fact, you're just inviting us to look to you. To look to you. And know that in a beautiful, not a trite way, in a beautiful way, the answer to our doubt is found in a relationship with a real person, a risen Lord. And so we do look to you today, Jesus. Whatever we're carrying, whatever we're struggling with, we simply want to look to you and know that you are the one who walks us through the darkness, through the doubt, through the despair. You are the one who leads us to life. And I just pray for each one of us today, whatever we may be experiencing, whatever troubles we may be uh, walking through, that we can look to you, be led by you. Jesus, you are good. And as we're going to sing now, strong and kind. 
Thanks for listening in today. We hope you feel encouraged and challenged. If you know someone who would benefit from what you have heard today, please share this podcast. For more information, or if you have questions, you can connect with us through our website, ericksoncovenant.ca. You can also find us on Facebook by searching for Erickson Covenant Church.